0: welcome to access utah i'm tom williams in the fifth century bc greek historian herodotus wrote of a high plateau in a mountainous region where there were gold digging ants this launched the enduring myth of tibet it's a shangri-la place of beauty riches and peace leslie brown halper and stefan halper were invited to visit tibet in 1997 as guests of the chinese government the only way to see the place was to sneak out of their hotel window past their Chinese guards at 3 a.m. and They were shocked by the real Tibet they encountered, 180-degree departure from the myth. This prompted their academic careers in Asian and Tibetan studies, as well as work at the White House and with the U.S. State Department. In their book, Tibet, an unfinished story, the Halpers say that uh, Tibet's is a story of treachery and ambition stretching from London to Delhi, Beijing to Washington. And They explain why Tibet fascinates the world, why it's stuck in its current desperate state, and they predict that the Chinese Communist Party's attempts to deconstruct Tibetan culture will ultimately fail. Leslie Brown Halper is a research associate at Corpus Christi College, Cambridge. She's a Tibet scholar who's extensively traveled in and written about South Asia. We welcome you into the program. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you for having us.
0: And Stefan Halper is Director of American Studies at the Department of Politics and International Studies, University of Cambridge. He's a life fellow of Magdalene College, Cambridge. First visited Tibet in 1997, as did Leslie Brown Halper. He has served in the White House and U.S. Department of State, written extensively on U.S. foreign policy and U.S.-China relations. Uh, Stefan Halper, welcome to the program.
2: Thanks. Thanks very much, Tom. Thanks for having us.
0: Maybe we could start. uh, Let me start with you, uh, Leslie. uh, uh, that visit in 1997 sounds very dramatic, and I, I suppose the reason you had to sneak past the guards there at 3 a.m. is that China wanted to wanted to control the situation, control information. Uh, tell us about that visit.
1: Um, it was, for us, a fascinating visit, and indeed um, the reason we did have to sneak out of our hotel room. In those days, they put all the visitors in one hotel, the Holiday Inn, just outside the the Lhasa Square and we had minders. We had two or three minders with us at all times. Actually, one of them uh, slept outside our door and uh, sat in a chair to make sure that we did not leave the hotel. We were told that there would be no way for us to uh, get out and see Lhasa or the monasteries without this minder, but we had had a briefing from the State Department before we left, and uh, we sort of understood the layout of, of Lhasa. And uh, at 3 a.m., we were ready, and we were on the ground floor, their mistake. And we opened that window, and we were a lot more agile in those days. And we, the two of us climbed out the window and began to walk towards the town and ended up in uh, the Barkhor Square where the Jokon Temple is and were um, able to see how the Tibetans were praying, how they were, you know, what they were doing, how they were congregating, which was uh, even at that time illegal to congregate. And then we also saw the hydraulic cameras that the Chinese used um, in in the night to look over the square and to film um, we stayed until the sun came up, and then slowly you would see those uh, cameras come back down. So it was um, an experience for all of us, for both of us. It was fabulous.
0: And what you saw, uh, I think there would have been some shocking things, certainly different from the idea, I suppose, the, the myth.
1: Well, I, and here I'll let uh, Stefan continue this story on on what we
2: saw here. Well in terms of shocking things, um, I suppose what struck me the most was the the devotion of these worshippers. They would come from very far distances and they have a kind of a um, ritual genuflection in which they fall to the ground and they they uh, extend their bodies and then they stand up again and do the same thing for six tenths of a mile around the circumference of the Jokong Temple, which is one of the most uh, sacred places in Lhasa. It's shocking. I mean, the Chinese um, soldiers walk around the city in groups of four. Uh, Two of them carry rifles and two of them carry fire extinguishers. And the reason is that the Chinese government is so horrified by the possibility of a photograph of someone burning themselves alive in protest of chinese rule that um, they try to do everything they can to prevent these photographs from getting out but as you know uh... there have been a hundred and thirty people who've killed themselves by burning themselves to death since two thousand nine actually four of them just this year so the resistance to chinese rule is ferocious it could not be more profound and places in lockdown Mm. when you walk through the monasteries and you sort of talk with the, the the monks they're afraid to talk to you because even in the monasteries even in the stairwells uh... everything is recorded and there are video cameras what they sometimes did with us is passed us little notes um their situation. But yeah, I mean, the place was so shocking that when we came back, uh, uh, we wrote uh, some editorials which were highly critical, and the Chinese made it clear that we weren't to be invited back. Mm-hmm. Although we did manage to... We uh, got back anyway.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we did manage to get back in.
0: Yeah. Uh, Leslie, I, I wonder... the. the it's just incredible what China is trying to do here. I think nothing less than, as you put it, uh, deconstructing Tibetan culture. How are they trying to do this?
1: Well, I think that you, that, uh, you have to remember that the Chinese have always said that uh, Tibet is an inalienable part of uh, China. But that basically does not mean um, that 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 really was a part of china and they do have their own separate uh... language and separate culture and what the chinese are doing systematically uh... step-by-step is taking away their language so that the chinese school children are not learning they don't have textbooks there's nothing written in tibet in tibetan they're learning first chinese and then they're learning english so that's one of the ways that they're deconstructing the culture. The second idea is that the, the Tibetans are not allowed to practice their religion. So if, if you have a picture of the Dalai Lama, you'll be taken away and put in prison. So, uh, and there's these monks that are now in the monasteries. This is just for show. It's like a Disneyland. Uh, these Chinese that come to visit, they buy tickets. They go into the monasteries or they go into the sacred temple, the Jokan temple, and there's nothing there. These are shells. So step by step the Chinese um, are trying to take away the culture, the language, the history. The history books that the Tibetan children are reading are it's that's not about the Tibetan history and, and the identity in the Tibetan history that was separate. This is a Chinese revisionist history about what the Chinese would like Tibetan children um, to learn. And so there's no higher education for these children, even if they wanted to go on and and wanted to learn any sort of their language or their history. So yes, this is a complete colonization um, and deconstruction of the Tibetan culture. There's no question about that.
0: Mm. Stefan, it occurred to me, why did China want Tibet? Where where did this idea come from that Tibet is is so crucial to be a part of part of china i guess so a comparison could be mongolia
2: yeah i suppose you could make a comparison with mongolia but uh, tibet's a very large space it's larger than the country of france it's um, as you, as you know it's, it's high mountains the himalaya in uh, those areas are, are in the twenty thousand foot range uh, and that means that there's enormous amounts of fresh water that come down from these mountains. And in this case, the Chinese use that water to uh, lubricate all of central China. Without Tibetan water, uh, Chinese agriculture and a good portion of southern and central China would be difficult, if not impossible. Second thing is, the Chinese felt there were minerals that they could... uh, extract from Tibet, and they've been busy uh, developing the infrastructure to do that. That means mines and railways and other forms of transporting uh, minerals out. But I think the main point is that China has been in a a kind of a contest with Tibet for thousands of years over which, whether it was China or Tibet, that was actually the dominant uh, player. At times, in what has been described as a priest-patron relationship, the Chinese uh, sought spiritual and uh, religious uh, endorsement from the Tibetans. And at other times, the Chinese had the the primary relationship. So it went back and forth. Uh, But China has the view that Tibet was a part of the greater motherland And by the way, this is not just the communists. I mean, it's not just Mao Zedong. The nationalists under Chiang Kai-shek had the same view, uh, and the Qing dynasty before that. So you have uh, an extensive history here in which China has had in its mind the idea that Tibet was somehow part of China, and the Tibetans, as Leslie says, had a very distinct culture, different language, different practices, different religion, uh different customs and communities and that is what is at issue today is china's attempt to sort of uh reduce this
1: and my husband and i like to say that facts are stubborn little things and the fact here is that as much as the chinese say oh tibet was always uh, a part of china it's it's simply not true history shows that
0: hmm. i wonder though and and you're i guess somewhat hopeful um, you say the Chinese Communist Party's attempts to deconstruct Tibetan culture will ultimately fail. When I read that, of course, gave me a, a bit of hope. I think uh, most in the West are outraged by by this. It offends our, at least our sensibilities. <clears throat> but uh, we have a very short attention span. And we're, we're, you know, we're crises pop up. We're on to the next thing. The Chinese, can't, can't they afford to to wait this out over decades and maybe centuries if, if need be?
2: Um, well, you raise a good question. I mean, the Chinese is, are known for their very uh, great uh, patience and long-term planning on these things. But the point I think that needs to be made and, and that should give many of us a measure of encouragement is that China has no shortage of difficult issues confronting it right now. It has problems in the South China Sea. It has uncontrollable corruption. Its economy is slowing uh, quite dramatically. Um, maybe by as much, it's slowing down by about 20%. It wasn't 7.5. It could be coming in around 5% GDP uh, in the next year or two. It has a demographic problem where it will grow old before it grows rich because. The one-child policy has not produced enough young people to generate income to support parents and grandparents. You've got factional disputes within the party and the military. And then you have, as you say, these very restive minorities, the Uyghurs in Xinjiang province, the Mongolians, and the Tibetans, not to mention, of course, rising tensions with the United States. So the point I think we're trying to underscore is the chinese are not nine feet tall just because they're investing heavily in their military and because they hold a lot of american debt does not mean they call the tune and there are good reasons for both of those points there the chinese i believe are going to have more trouble uh... succeeding in crushing tibetan culture than they ever dreamed they'd have it's a the question is, can they digest this Tibetan chestnut? And the chances are they probably cannot. Certainly not before factional difficulties in the party and in the military uh, create perhaps a different China. And any weakness in Beijing could easily lead to uh, a Tibetan, a more independent Tibet.
1: And even with the lockdown today and with the self-immolations, there is a strong sense, and there always has been, of Tibetan nationalism. And that frightens the Chinese more than anything that they can imagine. They were hopeful that uh, the Tibetans would somehow assimilate, that they would uh, revise their history, that they would, as we said, deconstruct their culture, and that this would all go away. But you know what? It hasn't. And uh, it's helpful that there is a Tibetan diaspora in Dharmsala, um, the Tibetan government, where there's over 100,000 uh, Tibetans, and, of course, around the world. There's, there's still much interest um, in, in the issue of Tibet um, today.
0: We're going to take so, a brief... Uh, I, yes, go ahead, and here? then we'll take a brief break. But go I ahead.
2: Say that even after six decades, think about this. The Chinese invaded in October of 1950, so we're over six decades out. Even with all of that, the area has been conquered by the military. But after all these years, and even with the repopulation of the area by Han Chinese, they put millions of Han Chinese have been transported from China down to Tibet. Tibet remains unwon. It is not. It has not been secured uh, by China. So this fight is really been underway a long time and is likely to go on for a while.
0: We're talking with uh, Stefan Halper. You heard him right there. Also, Leslie Brown Halper. They uh, are at Cambridge University, and uh, Stefan Halper has also been with the White House, and the U.S. Department of State. They uh, study uh, South Asia and uh, U.S.-China relations, and of course, Tibet and their book, very interesting book, Tibet, An Unfinished Story. It's out from Oxford University Press. The Financial Times says this book, based on recently declassified documents, is as gripping as a spy thriller. And we'll get into talking about that. In some places, it literally is a spy thriller. Uh, Some very interesting history of Tibet we'll get into. And we'll talk about... What does Tibet mean? What is the idea of Tibet? It's a very powerful idea. The helpers talk about uh, this giving uh, Tibet soft power to combat the hard power that uh, China is wielding there. Uh, we'll be back after this with more on Tibet. The Be Well Moment is made possible by the USU Department of Human Resources wellness program at usu.edu slash hr. One of the simplest types of physical activity is walking. It's also one of the most beneficial. Walking benefits the body in many ways. It's known to decrease stress, blood pressure, get people off medications, improve sleep, boost energy, preserve muscle, and improve blood sugar levels. Many state and national campaigns encourage 10,000 steps per day, so walk to work, walk at lunch with a friend, or just have a walking meeting. If you've been inactive for a while, try to walk more steps than the day before. Over the past four years, my pedometer has become my exercise buddy. It's always there for me, rain or shine. Let's start walking and let the results take care of themselves. Less traffic, healthier bodies, and cleaner air. This is Addison Pace for the Be Well program at Utah State University. Be well, Utah. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about Tibet, that fabled land, a troubled land as well. And a new book is out, Tibet, an Unfinished Story. It's by Leslie Brown Halper and Stefan Halper. They're at Cambridge University and are scholars of Asia, and uh, including Tibet, of course. Uh, we are talking about Tibet on the program today. And if you have a question or comment, we are opening the phone lines right now. Hope that you will join the program if you have an interest in uh, Tibet, I think as a lot of people do. Uh, the number is 1-800-826-1495, one 826 1495 Or you can join us by email to upraccess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. The helpers in their book explain why Tibet fascinates the world, why it's stuck in this current desperate state, and they predict... That the Chinese Communist Party's attempts to deconstruct Tibetan culture will ultimately fail. Um, I, I wonder if you could tell me about the idea of Tibet. This is an enduring idea, the the, the myth uh, side of this. I was interested in the prologue to the book, for one example, FDR uh, named Absolutely. a retreat, uh, Shangri La. He he was uh, and he was much struck by the book Lost Horizon.
1: Um, I'll give you a little brief uh, history here for your listeners. Um, as you mentioned in your open, the myth starts in the 5th century with Herodotus, the Greek scholar and historian who have claimed to um, travel to this uh, high mountainous plateau and see gold-digging ants. Of course, even today um, we're not sure what the gold-digging ants are, but you do see this this theme reappear. And in much of the history about Tibet, um, in later in the 14th century, uh, a Franciscan uh, missionary, or Doric, uh, wrote about Tibet, and he wrote about a land where he saw otherworldly beings, where there was free-flowing wine and abundance of food. Uh, he saw sky burials. He claimed to see women with uh, teeth as long as boar's tusks, and and these images began to fuel this idea that Tibet was mystical and and as I said, otherworldly. Um, this went on for a few centuries, but the Tibet was not really sort of opened to the West until Sir Francis' young husband, in service to Victorian England, uh, opened it up, and Lhasa was forced to sign a treaty with the Brits, and, uh, but it, quite interestingly, young husband... Um, had an epiphany in the silence of the mountains, right outside of Lhasa. He returned back to Britain and uh, began a life of spirituality. But interestingly, what happened there was these British views now of Tibet in the dinner tables of the high tables of Oxford, Oxford and Cambridge. They began to meld sort of uh, into this wider Western view. And in 1933, uh, you have James Hilton uh, bringing out his book Lost Horizon. And now, what you saw that Shangri became part of the vernacular. Uh, It was an international bestseller, and uh, people now saw the magic and the mystery of Tibet. Uh, A few years later, in 1939, Himmler uh, sent an expedition to uh, to Tibet looking for the roots of the Aryan race. Um, There's a fabulous archive of that trip, of that expedition in the Hoover Institute and Stanford University. They measured faces and hands and took casts of uh... of fingers and toes of the tibetans and uh... they took thousands of photographs they skinned their animals they put up their flags uh... they claimed to see the gold-digging ants um, and then of course roosevelt who also had read uh, lost horizons um... we did some archival work we saw the letters between james hilton and roosevelt uh... roosevelt actually quoted a whole passage from hilton's book in his nineteen thirty seven chicago speech And then he was looking for his mountain retreat outside of Washington, D.C., in the Catoctin Mountains, and he gets up there on this warm April day in 1942, and he looks around and he says, this is Shangri-La. And that's what he names the retreat. It was later renamed uh, Camp David, as we know it today, after Eisenhower's uh, Eisenhower's grandson. So you can see there's a whole history that brings us right up to... um, the nineteen the end of the 1940s here when the Chinese invaded then 1950 and it is a fabulous story of Tibet Tibet right now
0: hmm. I wonder uh, Stefan if you could talk about you know sort of bring it forward and, uh, to today uh, I have in my mind this sort of this artificial Tibet this Disneyland Tibet that you talked about yeah uh, many yeah. Chinese tourists come and they the, what they see is the you know the sort of the shell the 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 sham right and then the real spiritual uh, authenticity lies in, uh, w- of course, with the Dalai Lama and uh, a- and and in the minds yeah. and hearts of people.
2: Um, le- let me uh, say a couple things. Um, one thing is that I wondered. I-, I think your listeners might be curious as to why uh, the Germans went out to Tibet to try to find the roots of the Aryan race. I mean, it sounds like a really bizarre thing to do. Uh, But there was a reason for that, and that is that they believed that Tibet was populated after the lost city of Atlantis in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, which is, of course, itself a myth, after this city sunk into the ocean, that people escaped from it, and that the ones who eventually got to Tibet were, um, were protected by the high mountain peaks, from other races uh, intermarrying with them so that they were a very uh, pure uh, Tibetan uh, race. And they were trying to, to make the point that racial purity led to greater intelligence and greater industry and greater productivity. That was the Nazi theory. And so that's why they went out there to try to see if they could confirm that. And I I mean, it's one of the more bizarre, remarkable theories in modern uh, history, but but there it is. It just shows you how uh, Tibet created such a platform in the Western imagination that virtually anybody could be a strap strap hanger and travel along on this platform. Now, as as the myth of Tibet continued through time, um, what we've seen is that that, the, the idea of Tibet as a Shangri-La, as a remote kingdom uh, in which wisdom and rationality and hope uh, remained uh, the, the, at the center. This, this is what has carried the idea of Tibet through to today. Even though the communists have uh, completely dominated militarily the the land, the territory, the idea of Tibet, uh, which is actually the longest-standing myth in the West, it, it remains uh, uh, an idea which is discussed from Paris to San Francisco to uh, all, all across the West. This, this is what keeps Tibet going as an international concern. There's no other place. I mean, uh, like Xinjiang province and the Uyghurs or the Mongolians that have this kind of buoyant story that extols the virtue of, uh, of such a small and remote culture. So we've had that, and it's a factor, and, it's, and it has created uh, in, in international affairs a kind of moral condemnation of the Chinese for what they're doing there. Chinese brutality is broadly condemned. And this is the soft power that we talk about in the book. Um, it um, it's a unique soft power that Tibet exercises. The moral it is the power of moral condemnation, and it has actually slowed China's progress in global affairs because people question the values that the Chinese have and the, you know, the kind of governance which they. Impose upon their population
1: because the more China tries to suppress the myth, the more, in fact, Beijing is helping to sustain it. And this is why Tibet. Uh, this is the power of moral condemnation, as Steph says. This is the soft power.
0: Hmm. Uh, do you? How do you think this will affect? Uh, The Communist Party's grip on power, the progress of, of, of China going forward, will this actually affect, bend the curve, as it were, the future of China?
1: I'm not sure that it will affect the future of China, but it would. Ser- it's certainly going to be a thorn um, in China's side. China wants to be a main player at the big table, you know, uh, and every time the issue of human rights comes up, um, and it's not just uh, what's going on, say, in Tibet. Um, I don't know if some of your listeners might be following the newspaper. In Nepal now, um, the Chinese have, are are. Sort of told the Nepalese uh, government to uh, incarcerate the Tibetans. They're picked up on the street. They're not allowed to practice their their religion there. So, um, and this all has to do with human rights. So, the more China does this type of thing, um, denying people their right to 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 speak their language or practice their religion, uh, the more it's going to be difficult for China. So, you know, as I said, it will be a thorn in their side whether or not it's going to impact China on the bigger picture. That's difficult to say. Um, it will make some sort of impact, and it's not going to go away.
0: Are there—yeah, go ahead.
2: Sorry. I was just going to add a small point, which is that in terms of people who live within China, Han Chinese, the, the, the notion of controversy in Tibet— is almost non-existent the Chinese don't talk about Tibet if they can possibly avoid it when you run into even educated Chinese uh, at the universities here in the States and in the, and in England uh, they really don't know much about the Tibetans except they say well they must all be terrorists so China has sealed off this issue from its internal population what it cannot do is contain the issue on the global stage.
0: Hmm. I'm wondering about parallels with what's going on right now in Ukraine. Are, are there parallels you can see, lessons that we, we should take, can take?
2: Well, I think there are, actually. Um, as much as I hesitate to say it, uh, China uh, simply rolled over the Tibetan border without reference to Tibet's claims of sovereignty. Uh, and the uh, U.S. State Department, the legal advisor here, uh, said, look, Tibet has all of the characteristics of a nation-state. They've rolled over that border. China has disputes underway with 13 different countries around it. Um, It has uh, taken uh, steps to try to acquire parts of India. It's acquired parts of Vietnam. It's challenging Japan on the Senkaku. It's taken parts of the Philippines. Um, what, what does this tell us? Well, it tells us that it's essential that the United States stand up for a very clear concept of sovereignty and the rule of law, that we do not tolerate um, countries rolling across borders uh, simply because it's politically convenient or because they think they can justify it uh, according to some bogus uh, legal argument. The Russians have no right being in eastern Ukraine, even though there are some Russian speakers there, maybe even 25 percent of the population speaks Russian. But that doesn't justify Russia rolling across that border, just as Uh, Hitler was not justified in rolling across the Sudetenland border in Czechoslovakia in 1938. Um, And China was not justified in rolling across the Tibetan border, even though there were very few Chinese on the other side to invite them in. In fact, there weren't any. So what we have here is a challenge, frankly, to the West. And it is a challenge to stand up for our concept of sovereignty, which, by the way, was established in 1648 in the Westphalian Treaty, and to particularly underscore the importance of the rule of law. That's something the Chinese are unwilling to do. Uh, They do not accept, for example, a uh, judicial uh, resolution of their disputes with Philippines, Japan, uh, Vietnam, and others in the South China Sea, uh, they prefer to use intimidation uh, and uh, other other forms of warfare to try to acquire territory so yeah there's right now one of the largest theoretical issues for us to deal with internationally is to remind people that we cannot all function together unless we respect the rule of law.
0: Mm. I wonder, though, uh, and we've seen this play out with with Crimea and, and so forth. Uh, isn't, at the end of the day, standing up won't they have to mean the, the willingness to use military force? Isn't that the only thing that, uh, that that Russia or China would would respond to?
2: Yeah, I think uh, I'll I'll take this question uh, for the moment. I uh, indeed, you're right. Um, Now, Obama did the right thing when he just said in in Japan yesterday that we stand by the U.S.-Japan Security Treaty. Article 5 means that we will support the Japanese if China attacks or tries to seize the Senkaku Islands. Frankly, this this will go some distance in stabilizing affairs in East Asia. It will remind the Chinese that this is not low-hanging fruit. They can't just grab it. It will be very costly. And I think that uh, going to the Ukraine, um, the idea that American paratroops have been put into Poland, Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia, uh, although not very many, but they're there, they're a tripwire, they establish a red line, a real red line, that the Russians cannot cross. I would have been in favor of having U.S. exercises in Eastern Ukraine together with Ukrainian forces and NATO. This administration thought that was a bit too provocative. Uh, fair enough, but the result is that we've, we've got a much messier situation right now than we, we would have had had we acted a little bit sooner.
0: We're going to take another brief break. And we're, we'll are we be back talking about Tibet. The, the book is Tibet, An Unfinished Story. Very interesting book um, and uh, investigates many questions, including uh, why Tibet fascinates the world, this enduring myth, this uh, Shangri-La, uh, why it's stuck in the current desperate state. The prediction that they give, though, is somewhat hopeful. The Chinese Communist Party's attempts to deconstruct Tibetan culture will ultimately fail, they say. My guests are Leslie Brown Halper and Stefan Halper. Uh, who are at Cambridge and uh, study uh, South Asia and, and these areas. Uh, if you'd like to join the conversation, hope that you will, at one eight hundred eight two six one four nine five, 826 1495 or email upraccess at com. We'll get into some of this fascinating history, the, the spy stuff, which is fascinating. One question investigated in the book, is it really possible that the conservative anti-communists who formed the China lobby in Washington stopped the Truman and Eisenhower administrations from openly helping Tibet to resist Chinese communists. And what was the CIA's role? We'll get into those questions following the break. On The Next Humankind, we hear from John Bogle, founder of Vanguard. He's one of the world's most successful investors and at the same time a fierce critic of big business. Also, former New York Times reporter Chris Hedges discusses how our media culture can make it hard for people to distinguish between reality and fantasy. I'm David Freudberg. Join us for Humankind. Thursday night at 8.30 on Utah Public Radio.
3: Waste not. Fertilizers and yard waste, such as grass clippings or leaves that are swept down our storm drains, contribute to the amount of nutrients in our rivers and lakes. The increased nutrient levels can harm fish and other wildlife. We can improve water quality by sweeping up fertilizers and clippings off our sidewalks and driveways to prevent them from running into storm drains.
0: Waste not is made possible by the Logan City Public Works Water Conservation Department. Information at loganutah.org slash public Thanks for listening to Access Utah. Another 10 minutes or so left with Leslie Brown Halper and Stefan Halper. They're at Cambridge University and they've written a fascinating new book, Tibet, an Unfinished Story, where they explain why Tibet continues to fascinate the world why it's stuck in its current desperate state, and they predict what uh, will happen, that including hopeful prediction that Chinese Communist Party's attempt to deconstruct Tibetan culture will ultimately fail. Uh, your uh, questions and comments, welcome at 1-800-826-1495, or you can join us at upraxis at gmail.com. I want to get into some of the, some of the spy stuff. Uh, Leslie... Here's a question that uh, you investigate in the book. Is it really possible that conservative anti-communists who formed the China lobby in Washington stopped the Truman and Eisenhower administrations from openly helping Tibet to resist Chinese communists?
1: Absolutely, and it was really, the 1950s were such an interesting period in uh, American history. It was the time of the Red Scare, and so basically what you had is you had the China lobby, along with the Catholic Church, and you had, uh, along with Henry Luce. The publisher of Time, Life, and Fortune magazine, who his magazine reached one third of the American public every every single week, and those three believed that they had to that it was imperative to support Chiang Kai Shek and his nationalists in order to thwart the Chinese Communists. And unfortunately, the the nationalists like the Chinese Communists believed that Tibet was a part of China. So the White House was confronted by this very strong group of people, and the White House needed, at the time, the nationalists and Shanghai Kai-shek to fight communism. And uh, there were many in Congress who agreed, of course, um, Senator Joe McCarthy and uh, Walter Judd, to name a few. And so they were really facing—it was a very, very difficult time for President Truman and and very most particularly for Dean Acheson, who took the brunt of all this who lost uh, China— So you you had that um, part uh, that the United States was was facing at the time. They could not provide overt assistance, and that was sort of the domestic politics. But more than that, there was the geopolitics at the time, and the United States had looked to India perhaps for help uh, in the issue on Tibet because India had inherited all the rights and obligations in 1947 from Britain for Tibet, but the um, there was no dialogue between uh, Delhi and Washington because the relationship had gotten off to a just a horrific, uh, horrible start in the visit in 1941, uh, 1949, and we detail this um, in our book. And so when Washington thought, well, maybe they can talk to Delhi about providing some sort of aid uh, to the Tibetans overtly, their, Nehru was just... He had made it clear that he would cooperate with Beijing. So you had an issue domestically. You had an issue geopolitically, which brought us up to 1956 when uh, President Eisenhower decided that they were going to assist the Tibetans in a covert operation. Um, They were Tibetan resistance fighters. And as one CIA agent uh, told us, uh, and we talk about this in the book, that it was the most romantic covert operation ever undertaken. And, uh, and so we did begin to help them in 1956, and um, we ended this in 1972 with mm. uh, Nixon and Kissinger when they reset the China relationship.
0: Well, why the most romantic operation?
1: Well, I think, you know, and this is great, it sort of ties everything in that we've been discussing on on your show today. So it was this romantic idea, of course, because of the myth. And uh, here were these Tibetans, and finally the United States was going to get to help them. And these uh, these resistance fighters, um, they were known as Kampas from the eastern part of Tibet, were originally uh, began their training in Saipan and then went on to Camp Hale uh, in Colorado and then later in uh, Mustang in an enclave, a Tibetan enclave in Nepal and uh, of course everybody's uh, eisenhower's image just like truman and, and roosevelt was about shangri-la and here we were able to help these uh, fighters they were brought to the united states they did not speak um, any english uh they did not understand the concept of a 24-hour clock we talked to uh former cia operatives one in particular who was there at the training when the first group of men a small group got off the plane in saipan they had no idea where they were going the uh, windows were blacked out in the plane they saw on the wall an object with st- uh, stick black you know sticks going around with numbers they had no idea that was a clock the men were mesmerized but the difficulty of that was that when the you when the covert when the C.I.A. went to train them, they didn't understand this concept of 24-hour of the clock or time. So they were saying, well, we're going to do airdrops or airdrops. Uh, and they said, well, we don't, you know, we don't understand this time. They had no watches. They didn't speak English, and they had no formal education. So they had to be taught um, their Tibetan grammar, which had to be translated back into English, before they could even learn to code and decode or use Morse code. So it was, for the for the agency, a very, very difficult, daunting task. But you know what? We did it. And these men did bring back important information um, to uh, to not only the agency, but it was presented uh, before the NSC, which helped the United States. We understood more what was going on about Mao's collectivization programs, about the fact that there were 85,000 Tibetans killed within a five-year period.
2: So it, it, in the end, it, it did... It was good. Hmm. Can I just add a quick thing? Yes. Uh, When they trained these Tibetans, they brought them on these uh, old DC three airplanes, blacked out the windows, and put them in seats. First thing that happened is the Tibetans Tibetans, they got out of the seats. They didn't like sitting in the seats, so they sat on the floor. They were served a luncheon, which had uh, hamburgers and vegetables and some soap on the side to wash their hands first thing they did is eat the soap, uh, because they'd never seen soap before. So this gives you an idea, really, of how primitive these folks were and how much training they had to go through. When Leslie's talking about them not understanding numbers, what that means is they couldn't understand the coordinates at which these airdrops would go forward. In other words, they didn't know where they would find parachutes coming down with ammunition, food, supplies, and so on. So this was uh, this was a really extensive effort by CIA. When they finally got them to the United States, the Dependents did not know they were in Camp Hale in Colorado. They didn't know they were in the United States. So it was all super secret, um, but it did work out
0: to mm. some degree. We just have a couple of minutes left. I want to bring it uh, to today and looking to the future. Um, the, the soft power you're talking about, moral uh, authority, wielded, very well, I think we could say, by the, the current Dalai Lama. What happens when he yep. passes?
2: When this Dalai Lama passes, the Chinese have an even more serious problem because the oncoming generation, the Tibetan youth movement, are much more radical. They believe they haven't made progress uh, by trying to deal rationally and quietly with the Chinese. They think the only thing the Chinese understand is force and they will be inclined to open uh, military guerrilla-type operations in Tibet uh, as soon as they can. Now, um, I, I don't think anybody's recommending that, really, because they're going to, they're going to have a tough time, very, di- very difficult time, operating against the People's Liberation Army. Uh, but China has an opportunity now to make some kind of a gesture that would offer a bit more flexibility and a bit more uh, local freedom to the Tibetans. And they would be complimented internationally if they did it. Uh, They would lose nothing domestically. And uh, uh, I would have thought they would jump at this moment to, to move forward with some kind of a modified policy in Tibet.
0: We'll uh, leave it there out of time. The, the very interesting book is called Tibet, An Unfinished Story. I've been talking with the authors who are both at Cambridge University. Leslie Brown Halper, thank you so much.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much.
0: And uh, Stefan Halper, thank you.
2: Thank you so much. It'll be really good to have this conversation. Appreciate it.
0: And uh, join us tomorrow, of course, for Access Utah. Until then, uh, for producers, Katie Swain and Bennett Purser, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks so much for listening today.
4: Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 3. Now offering a ham and cheese demi baguette sandwich. Menu details at crumbbrothers.com.
3: Utah Public Radio presents StoryCorps, an oral history project in conjunction with the National Library of Congress, recorded in May of 2013 in St. George. UPR's Carrie Bringhurst talks with her mom, Kathy Lynn Jones, about being a dance ambassador for the city of Mesquite, Nevada.
5: I belong to a senior dance team called the Mesquite Toes. Our average age is 69 and a half. I've only danced with them for three years, but they celebrated their 10th year anniversary this year. It started as an exercise class at the rec center. Out of the 10 beginners, five of them are still dancing. We took a trip this year to Palm Springs and to Knott's Berry Farm in California, and then next year we're going to Alaska on another cruise. We do about 26 different dances. We have tap classes, jazz classes, and clogging classes. I do like the clogging the best. I think it's the fact that you can take out all of your frustrations stomping your feet that loud. Tell me about the group's favorite color. Well, their costumes are all pink. That's their traveling attire. The costumes come in a variety of colors. But whenever we go anywhere, the director says, wear your pinks. So we all don our pink traveling suits or our pink shirts and cowboy hats, and uh, off we go to represent the mesquite toes. The mayor of Mesquite, at the time they started doing their spectacular, which was three years into their beginning, he dubbed them the ambassadors of Goodwill Ambassadors of Mesquite. Wherever we go, that's our motto, and we are the Goodwill Ambassadors. So we try to represent Mesquite, Nevada.
4: One of my favorite experiences this past year was being able to go with you and your friends, your mosquitoes, on a cruise of the Mediterranean. And you guys performed on the cruise ship, and you were the hit of the cruise ship. So I think you're being a little modest when you say you don't know how to dance, and especially you. You're a very good dancer.
5: No better than I think I am, but (laughs) we do. We just really have a lot of fun. I think it's like playing dress-up every time we put on a performance. It's just like Oh, we get to put glitter on our cheeks, and we get to wear all this makeup. And you guys are, you're just girly girls. Oh. All your glitter and all your bling. And, and it's kind of like being in high school all over again. There's little cliques, and there's little clashes, and there's people's feelings get hurt and stories to tell. And some of my favorite memories in the Mosquitoes are just the performances and the backstage. And it looks like, oh, you just get up there and you shuffle. But if they just could see behind the scenes of throwing outfits on and off. And we have dressers that give us their time to help us get ready for the next number. How many hours a day would you say you practice? A couple, three hours every day that we're not having classes. And there are some days that we would be in class for four or five hours just because it's showtime and you really have to crank it up when it gets close to the deadline. Let's uh, talk about your high school experiences and uh, your drill team adventures. (laughs) Oh, goodness.
4: All I'm going to say about that is that having you be a mosquito does feel a a little bit like payback. I mean, I do. I remember coming to you and saying, oh, so-and-so did this. And, oh, can you believe this? And, oh, yeah, I don't want to go to practice again. So now I'm getting the phone calls. Oh, you would not believe what so-and-so did today. And... This costume is not going to look good. And now I'm on the opposite side of things where I just want to say,
5: really, grow up. (laughs) A couple more years, you'll get to join a senior dance group, and there you go. (laughs) Thank you for that. Can't
4: wait. Problem is, I don't know how to dance. (laughs) Now, wait a
5: minute. I remember specifically taking every back road in Vernal to take you to a dance class in a ladies' trailer. And do you remember the name of the song?
4: I am a dancing poodle. That's
5: right. What do you mean you don't dance? I'll bet you could still do it. Let me just,
4: you know, close by letting you know how much I love you. And I'm proud of you. I'm proud of your dancing. I know that's filled an important role in your life. So thanks, Mom. Thank you.
3: These interviews were recorded at StoryCorps, a national initiative to record and collect stories of everyday people. Excerpts were selected and produced by Utah Public Radio. Support for StoryCorps on Utah Public Radio comes from Dixie Regional Medical Center, located on two campuses in St. George, serving northwestern Arizona, southeastern Nevada, and southern Utah. Information at dixieregional.org.
4: UPR explores what your home says about you in its new series, My Address Is. UPR reporters spoke with individuals from all walks of life about how their homes reflect who they are and to discuss close to home issues facing our friends and families.
0: Our home was our family, and all we need to do is find a house to put it in. Dairy farming has been a good life for me.
4: Tune in during All Things Considered to hear how your neighbors live with My Address Is.
3: Sometimes a kid just doesn't want to take violin lessons. I was hiding under the piano for most of the lesson because I didn't want to have to deal with the violin. Finally, towards the end of the lesson, I guess,
0: the teacher was trying to coax me out, and I said,
3: I want to take your violin and and run over it with a car in the
0: parking lot. Nice. Happily, he became an outstanding classical guitarist instead. Join me, Christopher O'Reilly, to meet him on this week's From the Top.
4: Friday afternoon at 2 and Sunday night at 9 on Utah Public Radio. Our website now showcases the scenic vistas our state is known for. From the Red Rock of Monument Valley to the Blue and Green Mountains of northern Utah, Utah Public Radio would like to thank artist Allison Hanover for her designs. Visit us online at upr.org.
0: This is Utah Public Radio. KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.